Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Incutel Podcast. I am Adam Van Etten, and today I'm joined by my other colleagues from Incutel Labs. With me is Daniel Hogan, who's part of the Cosmic Works, the Geospatial Analytics Lab of Incutel. We also have Kinga and Felipe joining us from the ITT Labs Data Scientist team. Welcome, everyone. And today we'll be discussing a topic about data set requirements. Specifically, we're titling this, Good Data is Hard, but the Training Must Go On. Training data set characteristics across different domains remain very challenging to, to draw parallels between, uh, but there are some that you can, you can poke at, and that's what we'll try and do today, specifically looking at the uh, quality and quantity considerations for, for each domain. Today, we'll start with the uh, cosmic study, Ant Robustness, uh, something that Daniel Hogan took the lead on. So, Daniel, maybe you can chime in um, just describing what this robustness study was and what the goal behind this project was. We wanted to understand how geospatial deep learning model performance depends on the amount of labeled imagery training data. To do that, we used a case study of finding building footprints, that is to say building outlines in optical satellite imagery. And along the way, we sought to develop and demonstrate practical techniques for making informed decisions about geospatial training data needs. Great, so why is this important to try and tackle this problem? Because in the absence of this kind of approach, picking the right amount of training data comes down to guesswork. Guess too little and the model underperforms, guess too much and expend extensive resources for negligible gain. And while building footprint tracing has value in and of itself, it's also a useful proxy for many kinds of satellite imagery challenges. And this is something that, that we've covered before on previous podcasts, and there's a lot of, of results and a lot of complexity here. But if you had two takeaways or important points that you'd like to convey to listeners, what would those be? First, deep learning model performance rises rapidly with training data quantity when training data is scarce, but performance enters a regime of strongly diminishing returns as data becomes more abundant. For example, in one case, we saw models getting two thirds of their maximum performance with just 3% of the training data. Secondly, geographic differences and similarities affect performance and can lead to general purpose models trained on combined data that outperform location specific models. Great, thanks Daniel. All right, a similar problem in a lot of ways, even though it appears very different, is the, the biology domain. So even though satellite imagery and biological imagery may appear supremely different, if you look at the actual details of the data sets, there's a lot of similarity in terms of very large image sizes, very small objects, uh, challenges with labeled data. And so there, there's, there's some connection that can be drawn between these geospatial data sets that, that Daniel uh, studied with his robustness project, and then things you, you can do on the biology side. And so to describe a, a in-progress project, one of our colleagues, Kinga, has joined us. Um, so Kinga, can you describe um, briefly uh, this project that you're undertaking in the, in the biodomain? Sure. So one of the things that we're investigating is how to build biomedical classifiers. And as you mentioned, Adam, this type of data is related conceptually in some sense to the, the geospatial data that we were just discussing. And you can imagine use cases if you have like cell cultures and images of these that you want to use as part of a, a pipeline in some sort of lab 
or a doctor looking at images of mammograms trying to determine if there's cancer or not. And the focus that we have here is on specifics of this biomedical style of data. I'm actually not gonna focus on segmentation, uh, which you could to identify cells, but looking at more of these texture-based problems and what are the benefits if we're able to automate classification of these biomedical texture style challenges. Great. So why did you specifically decide to tackle this problem and what was the import here if we're successful? Uh, it's a great question and there are sort of two ways to answer that. One of the benefits of being able to do better in biomedical image classification is then the ability to automate these processes and remove the human from the equation. So if you have a, a, a bio lab that needs to decide if, for example, a cell culture image is, is viable or not to use that cell culture for a downstream task, if you can automate that with a good classifier, then you can um, grade these images more quickly and you can also scale because you don't rely on humans that have to have a lot of experience in doing this sort of thing. Yeah, great. So understanding that this, this is a in progress and we have a, a lot to, to wait and see in terms of results, but if you had two takeaways or important points to convey, uh, what would they be so far? Sure. One of the things that I've found in, in some of the experiments that I'm running here is this sort of need to honor the difficulty of some of these texture classification problems. For example, if we're looking at images that are hard for even a human to classify, where there isn't a lot of inter-rater agreement, I've found that I, it becomes very important to standardize everything on these images, the magnification, lighting angle, things like that, um, which is, I guess, maybe less forgiving for this domain and this particular application than some other ones. The other or important thing that I've noticed is this idea that how you split your limited and often very limited training data into train and test, or even how you tile your images to try to get more images to train from, uh, depends a lot on exactly what you're trying to do. And so you have to be very careful to not make the problem too easy by accidentally testing and training on the same data. And I don't mean just not knowing how to split that like a, a good data scientist would, but if you have multiple images from the same sort of raw image, whether that's in the raw data coming from the biologist or how you choose to tile them, you can make generalization of your classifier problem if you end up putting the same raw images tiles into the training and the test sets that you're end up ending up using. Great, thanks for that. Yeah, I think uh, we can get into this a bit more later, but there's obvious parallels in a lot of those challenges with different domains. So. Uh, that's good, given that's the point of this podcast. All right, now on to a brief intro for our third topic. We have Felipe joining us as well, and, and he's been working on a project called Vendata. So uh, Felipe, could you describe that project for us? Yeah, definitely. So Vendata, uh, the main goal of Vendata is basically to try to answer some of these questions that some of the guests have sort of talked about, where we're trying to understand uh, is our data any good? Do we have enough data? Uh, is our data useful? Do we have high enough quality data? Uh, will, will our data generalize? And so uh, the Vendata project is basically trying to sort of go after some of these questions and try to find solutions that will tell you, yes, uh, your data is has a good quality and has been doesn't have too many mislabels, too many uh, noisy inputs. So it's actually useful for you to use. 
Right. And so, so we've kind of stolen a punchline already a bit in terms of why this is important to solve with the, the first two. Is there anything you'd like to add that maybe we haven't covered already in terms of uh, the, the importance of tackling this problem? Yeah. So I think in the community at large, there's sort of this notion or this idea that a lot of time that the, the biggest hurdle is kind of the data. Like there's algorithms out there that they're open source that can just be pulled along. There's the compute uh, GPUs becoming more and more easily accessible. And so it just becomes like, how can we get this data? And that is sort of becoming the main barrier for different applications and different use cases. So what we want to sort of do is is sort of develop these methods, these guidelines, and these uh, strategies to best uh, help users develop their own data sets. Great. Thanks for that. And and again, this is this is an ongoing project, but are there any kind of takeaways so far, uh, two primarily, that you'd like to share? So I think the two main ones are basically that one is that some of these mainly deep learning models, which I think most of us have been uh, focused on, they're able to leverage large data sets and big data very efficiently. And so one of the reasons they were so successful was because they were combined with uh, with large data sets. And the reason for this is basically that these, these models are able to sort of ignore or uh, and sort of uh, not pay as much attention to data that's noisy or not or mislabeled. Basically, they sort of go around and uh, focus on patterns that are present as opposed to uh, data that uh, doesn't really have patterns and just has mislabels or uh, wrong data. And then two is that even though our mod- these models are very efficient at, at blocking out when there's a minority of mislabeled data, it's still the, there's still a limit to how, uh, how strong these models can leverage bad data. There's still cases where if you add more data, you actually get worse results. Uh, and that's something that we've basically been uh, working on in done data is basically seeing how can we identify those few examples that are really damaging uh, the performance of these models. So if, if we're trying to draw a common thread between these projects, you'll note that the answered questions about data set requirements, right? Draw these all together. And of course, they're tackling very different aspects of the problem and even different domains. But there are similarities, enough similarities that we can draw lessons uh, from one and the other. And that's something that, that we're working on. There's an accepted sentiment in data science circles, which we've touched on already, right, that, that more is better. But we've seen quantitatively from the robustness study from Daniel that there's a very interesting functional form, actually, that you get when you increase data. Um, Daniel, can you uh, just remind me what that is, the kind of the asymptote that we start seeing uh, as you increase data? It was a power law, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, We saw that with the uh, geospatial footprint finding case study, the performance as a function of training data quantity was fit very naturally by just a constant minus an inverse power law. Um, which uh, we call a learning curve, actually, because of another way it's used elsewhere in machine learning. And so that was really nice to be able to make empirical models like that, which allow for extrapolation and give one a a better sense of of what's going on with one's data. Yeah, and that's a a good point. And then, you know, even worse than that, right, uh, Felipe mentioned that, you know, their preliminary results, right, are that 
if you have noisy data, adding more can actually reduce performance. So it's even even more severe in certain cases where you haven't had maybe curated your data well enough. So this, this notion, right, that more is better is something that is not always true and also something that, well, well let, me, let me just put it out to the, to the three of you on the line. What's the number you typically hear for sufficient size in a data set? Yeah, um, I think for, for my mainly, it's a bit focused on images. So I, and I think from the experience I've had, over a uh, hundred to a couple hundred thousand images would be sort of the, the if without any other information about the, the use case, the very intravariability within the data sets with each other. So it's, it's one thing to uh, try to differentiate cats and dogs. It's another thing to try to differentiate different kind of, or it's one thing to try to differentiate uh, cats and dogs. It's another thing to try to differentiate uh, different types of airplanes where each airplane is more similar to each other. So it's, it's harder, uh, uh, the difficulty of the task changes. So without any extra information, I would say like a, a few hundred thousand to a couple hundred thousands minimum. We have heard the phrase millions of images more than once. And if sending the message that that is not the case is the only thing that comes out of this, that itself would be a win. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Daniel. I think it really matters on what you're trying to do and, and what tools you have. I, for, for this biomed domain, a thousand images is a lot, and that's for more than one class or something like that. And uh, w one of the things that I feel like we're almost forced to do is to try to rely on transfer learning from somewhere else. And then it really gets down to, are you transfer learning from another model that is similar or was trying to look at similar things uh, that we were trying to classify and getting back to cats and dogs, it's, I tend to view that as, you know, the, the model can sort of look at the low level, level features. We've all heard this analogy and then build it up that the cat has the whiskers and the dog has a tail or whatever, but that I found hasn't translated that well necessarily for my domain where it's a lot of the time just these textures and you're looking for very low level features um, like how much debris is there between cells but also how strong is the the line of the nucleus or this or that and it just becomes a challenging thing and I don't think I have a good answer of how many images I would need. I would love to I'm not there yet because it's an ongoing project, but talk to Felipe more and, and find out, you know, what's the quality of the images that I have right now and what are the ones that I'm pretty sure are mislabeled and probably impacting my accuracy a lot. Yeah, I yeah. uh, appreciate the, uh, all of the input there. Uh, the number I've often heard is, is a million images is, is sufficient. Once you hit that benchmark, then you're good to go. But to all your points, right, it, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. It depends on the application. You know, for the one that we have, I think the strongest numbers on uh, with the geospatial domain, right? I mean, it, it's certainly not a million. It, it's uh, you have a, a hundred. You actually have decent performance, and you have a, a few thousand, and you're uh, you're doing very very well. So, it certainly is not as simple as as picking a number out of a hat in a vacuum. Uh, and that's something that that's important to know, right? Because obviously, gathering data, especially if it's high quality stable data is onerous and expensive. And so knowing what you need before you start or, or maybe even trying to figure out as you go is a step that I think is often missed uh, in a quest for larger and larger data sets. 
I think looking at, at the actual use case uh, while you build the data set is probably a, a better idea than searching for that millionth uh, labeled image. Yeah, and one more comment about the data quantity uh, question. So one of the things that we've seen in sort of the papers that are uh, relevant to the Vendata project is uh, basically this idea of generating data that's specifically made to train a model uh, to high accuracy very quickly with minimal data points. Here, we're basically talking about these are data sets that are generated specifically designed to uh, quickly train the model. And uh, some of these papers are talking about uh, just having 10 images or 100 images and uh, recovering about like 80% of the performance of, of the entire model. And so these are uh, data sets that are very specifically made with a very specific use case, but and as sort of the extreme of like, there is possibility of decreasing the data set to a a smaller number. Uh, I think they take it a little bit too much, uh, too much of an extreme, only using uh, a few uh, dozen images. Uh, but it's an interesting, um, interesting papers out there. Yeah, certainly a lot of interesting work. Yeah, so so we've talked a bit about the data set size issue. Obviously, uh, there's more nuance I think that, that often gets covered. But there's also the, the quality issue, right? And what data set quality means is even hard to quantify at times. We have seen with the geospatial domain that certainly there is a difference in performance if you look at uh, road labels. It's something that, that uh, we've talked about in the past. But I think the SpaceNet data set that was used for this robustness study was pretty high quality, uh, not perfect. Um, Daniel, do you maybe have a comment on issues uh, with data set quality that were observed or or do you think that wasn't a significant challenge for the robustness study that you undertook? So there are certainly issues of quality, both of the imagery and geospatial electro-optical imagery. The amount of cloud cover is a consideration and there are considerations of data quality in the uh, labels as well. Uh, with big geospatial data sets, it is often the case that they are hand labeled, which is a big undertaking. There is also quality issues related to the nature of the data itself. For example, off nadir imagery is more challenging to interpret than imagery taken from directly overhead. Good point. Kinga, um, you've touched this a little bit, but any other thoughts on kind of what high quality means in the domain that you're studying? Sure. I, I think Daniel said it well. So for, for the biomedical domain, there's also this idea of human labeling. And in particular, sometimes it's just very hard to know. You're almost looking at two bowls of oatmeal, not literally, but it looks like that. And which one has the cancer or doesn't. Um, so that can be an issue. And the other problem I would say for quality is not necessarily something wrong with the image, like clouds or things like that, but you can have with things like phase contrast or differential interference contrast, different what I would call lighting angles or magnification. And if you imagine something like a fried egg, maybe that's the cell in its nucleus, how you light it from what angle and magnification can make the same object look different enough potentially that it might be harder to train a classifier if you have all these variables, which is why I talked about earlier, trying to standardize as much as you can if possible. Yeah, certainly not a, a glamorous undertaking, but one that, that is absolutely crucial if you want to maximize performance. 
Uh, and Felipe, you're, you're looking at this from a, a little broader perspective. Anything to add on the data set quality side? Yeah, the main things for that we've seen is basically uh, mislabeling is a big issue, uh, even with data sets that have been uh, well curated and have been out there for uh, long periods of time, um, the uh, both CIFAR 10 and ImageNet, we've seen that although they've been used for long periods of time, there is mislabels within those data sets. Follows that we have how relevant are the data to what your particular use case. And finally, if there is possibly sampling imbalance within your data set. So this is just something of like, for example, if you're looking at planes and your data set is filled with, if you're the, the data that you're going to be using uh, and testing your models on is filled with mainly passenger and your training data set has more stealth airplanes or more two-winged airplanes, that's going to damage the performance of the model if it's not doesn't have a similar sampling balance to what you will be actually uh, using your model in. Yeah, certainly the aircraft piece is something that's uh, near and dear to, to my heart. There's been a lot of effort uh, on the cosmic side and of the rare plane study. So that's another podcast, multiple podcasts that we have out if people are interested more in the, in the airplane study in terms of which types of aircraft are hard to discover and how much you need. So so that is a good point, Felipe, uh, just on the aircraft side. In general, right, clearly there is a challenge with data set requirements. And it's often a problem that in our estimation is a little bit overlooked in that once you get some data in hand, you just are off to the races. But stepping back a little bit and taking strategic view about what you need is often very beneficial. And, and, and that's what these three projects are, are trying to do kind of from different lenses, but, but in general, establish what is the quality that's required and the quantity that's required for your data sets and, and see if those translate to different domains. And I think that's a question that, that we'll be getting into more later. And uh, so I'll, I'll end by, by saying, well, first of all, if people want to know more, certainly the, there's a lot more on, on the blogs um, for Intel Labs, specifically uh, the downlink. And then uh, Gab41 uh, uh, also holds a lot of information about the other projects. So, so I'll end with just a, a very, very rigorous poll of our, our audience here of if you had to pick one, this is a yes, uh, this is not a nuanced answer, you have to pick one. Uh, quality or quantity, which one would it be? I feel bad saying this, but I would probably say quantity. <laughs> it's already picked for me. I, I had to choose quantity because I can only get so many images. <laughs> They're hard to get in this domain. I guess I'll go the other way and vote quality. All right. Well, well, there you go. Inconclusive results on the quality versus quantity. Unsurprising. But I uh, hope this was uh, entertaining and enlightening uh, for listeners. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>